All right, everybody, we've got an extra smart, mega fun show for you coming up in just a minute. But before we get started, do you realize you are outnumbered? No, Rico's not referring to your weird love of putting mustard on eggs. That's gross. Yeah. He's talking about your podcast listening habit. Mm. If you're listening to this, you're one of the few people in America who listens to on-demand audio. That's obviously a sad and bad thing. So we're trying to do something about it. And that is why this month we're joining other podcasts from outfits like NPR, ESPN, and the podcast network Gimlet to encourage podcast fans to spread the word about this format we love. And all you got to do is tell someone who doesn't listen to podcasts about one episode you loved from any podcast. And if you're doing it on social media, please use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. It's quick and easy, and it will make the people around you smarter. And then you can go back to your strange condiment decisions. Thanks for your help. Hold the mustard. And now, here's your icebreaker. Okay. So what do you call a woman who's very far away? What? Dot. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from filmmaker Danny Boyle. That'll break the ice. We'll talk to him later about his new movie, T2 Train Spotting. Yes, it is a train spotting sequel. Mm. And we'll pose your etiquette questions to the Emmy winning queen of drag queens, RuPaul. No punches are pulled there, folks. At all. Plus, Star Wars star Alan Tudyk sings the praises of robots. I drink wine for journalism, and we hear a new song from old favorite Blondie. You would need a heart of glass to dislike the show. Let's get it started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Today's vote on the GOP health care bill is on hold. A big weekend for Beauty and the Beast, the best opening ever for a PG-rated movie. The Scottish Parliament votes on whether to allow a second referendum on independence. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is an editor at Topic, a new digital storytelling studio. They made the new podcast, Missing Richard Simmons. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? You guys, I'm going to be talking about the Romanian National Evaluation. Okay. (laughs) Is this a band? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not quite. So it's a test that all Romanian 14 and 15-year-olds take. Imagine a Romanian SAT, I I think. Okay. Um, I don't want to, but I I will for the purposes of this discussion. So last year during this evaluation, the administrators noticed that between you know 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. when the test takers were, were hard at work, there was a spike in the searches of certain words online that are in the test. So, oh. these, so these kids are taking the test and they were using their phones searching up words to get the definitions. Oh, yeah. my. So they were cheating. Yes. But the administrators weren't, I think, quite sure. So this year, they actually monitored in real time dictionary search definitions during this window of the test. And they found the three most searched words, and they altered the dictionary definitions online for two hours. Ah. So if the kids used the wrong definitions of the words, they knew that they were cheating. Exactly. So so for two hours, anyone who searched these words would get the wrong definitions. Um, so they could see the students who used the wrong definitions were clearly the ones looking up the words. It was a trap. But is it a good move to make kids who aren't doing well in tests question the dictionary's integrity? <laughs> yes. isn't, isn't this their aid in the future? Like, it can help them. Yeah, we've already got a problem getting people to trust the media. Now they're going to distrust dictionaries? And I mean, imagine all the 
the poor citizens who were just sort of randomly Googling certain words. <laughs> That's true. Like for, for a few hours, everybody was misdefining the word. I don't know. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you that uh, it's almost too good to be true. But um, one of the words that they misdefined was the word treachery. <laughs> wow. Perfect. The students looked it up online and there was just a picture of them. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're going to have to change the Romanian word for integrity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rehan Harmansi, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our 100-proof history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Earlier this month marked the 27th anniversary of an infamous moment in art history. And criminal history. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The night of St. Patrick's Day, 1990, while lots of Bostoners were busy drinking, two thieves were busy stealing. Picture the scene. It's 1.30 a.m. that night, and you're a security guard at Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, home to one of the world's great art collections. Suddenly, the intercom buzzes, and two cops tell you to let them in because there's been a report of a fracas in the museum courtyard. You do as you're told, and then one cop handcuffs you, saying you look like someone he saw on an arrest warrant. When your fellow guard shows up, he gets handcuffed too, and that's when the cops tell you they're not cops. Actually, they're here to rob the joint. The alarm to alert the real police is behind the desk, which you can't hit because you're handcuffed. Then you're marched to the basement, where you sit all night while the thieves load 500 million bucks worth of art into their vehicle and drive off. The biggest theft of private property in American history. Among the stolen pieces, a Monet, a Vermeer, five drawings by Degas, and three Rembrandts. It would have been four, but the thieves couldn't get one of his self-portraits out of its huge frame, so they just left it on the floor. According to experts, stolen art is almost impossible to sell, and most art robbers get caught. But that hasn't prevented the Gardner Museum thieves from eluding capture for 27 years. And the art hasn't been recovered. Although the museum keeps empty frames on the wall, for the day it's all returned. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Jackson Cannon. He is co-owner and bar director of the Hawthorne in Boston, home of this huge heist. And Jackson, first of all, I understand you were an art security guard at another museum at the time of this heist? Yes, we're going back 25 years. I was a Berkeley student working at the Museum of Fine Arts just across the way, and I worked a shift the next day, and we've got to say we were all a little tense. I can imagine that security went up around the city all of a sudden in the wake of this. You know, like, I'm, you're supposed to say yes, but there weren't really any new... Maybe for the overnight guys, they were a bit more wary, but we just were still doing the same kind of thing. They didn't just, like, throw in some laser alarm systems or no, something? No, no. They didn't even do an additional briefing. We sort of heard it kind of whispered about, mostly, yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. I, I, I hope the robbers aren't listening right now. <laughs> uh, so, Jackson, you heard the history. You experienced it. What cocktail did that inspire? 
well, clearly the, the these were great works of art by Dutch masters. So um, I created a cocktail called the Dutch Room, uh, using uh, as its central ingredient Bowles Geneva, which is a spirit from Holland. Yes. You know, in some ways, the protogenitor to London-style gins. All right. So you start with the uh, Dutch gin, Geneva. So yeah, for the Dutch Room, we use uh, Bowles Geneva, uh, Lestau's East India Sherry. Uh, Chinar, which is an Italian bitter uh, made from artichokes, which still remains kind of a hipster ingredient in cocktail circles. I'm not, I'm not sure how much longer it's sure. going to last, but it's very cool to be using Chinar. Um, this might, this might jump the shark for it. I hope not. But. I hope not. And that's a bit to represent the embittered uh, uh, guards, perhaps. That's kind of what I was thinking, or my, or uh, how profoundly distressed my art history teacher was uh, the results of this theft. Um, a dash of Regans, which, uh, you know, you use a dash of red in a painting. We use a dash of bitters in a cocktail. Okay. Stir all those together, pour those out into a glass, and flame a little lemon oil over the top of it, and you have a great, bitter, perfumey, mm. uh, Dutch-inspired cocktail. So the paintings are gone, but the, the taste and scent of this drink will linger. Yeah, maybe after this cocktail, you know, you'll be able to fight back the tears. <laughs> Jackson Cannon of Boston Bar, the Hawthorne. And folks, you can get the recipe for the Dutch Room cocktail and every new cocktail recipe from our show emailed right to your inbox. That's right. And you don't have to steal them. We'll give them to you. That's nice of us. Just sign up for our weekly newsletter. It recently got a facelift. It looks great. You'll now get an icebreaker from a listener, food to pair with the cocktail, and updates about special DPD projects. Like, for instance, our ongoing Martini Madness Bracket in which we have pitted classic drinks against each other to decide which should be crowned king of cocktails. And Oh, actually, I'm getting word we have an update. From New York, this is the Martini Madness Report. I'm your host, David Brancaccio. Round one is done. Round two is through. And let's just say that there has been a lot of action on the road to Cocktail Valhalla. The sidecar crashed. Whiskey soured. The Mai Tai certainly did not tie. It lost handily. Its tiny umbrella swept away by a tidal wave of Martini, which is maybe not the worst fate. In round two, the Martini marched on, this time against the Moscow Mule. No shakeup there. The G&T eked out a W in its own matchup. Turns out the margarita was not worth its salt. On the other side of the bracket, the Negroni proved to be the ultimate jabroni. It made the old-fashioned look like a star. And our final newly minted loser, the Mojito. The Manhattan was stiff competition. So where does that leave us with four cocktail juggernauts? It's Martini against G&T and Old Fashioned against Manhattan. Vote for your favorite now at dinnerpartydownload.org. That's right, America. You imbibe, you decide. Please vote responsibly. Thank you, David Brancaccio. And people, you heard the man. Yeah, head to dinnerpartydownload.org to vote on your favorite drinks. As of this recording, the martini is losing to the gin and tonic. Please don't let this happen. God's sake. Once again, the website's dinnerpartydownload.org. Right, and now the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is actor Alan Tudyk, one of the stars of NBC's new superhero sitcom Powerless. After honing his chops at Juilliard, he spent most of his career in outer space. He starred in the cult TV hit Firefly and lent his voice to a slew of Disney films, including Star Wars Rogue One. Here's a fun fact. Alan's movies have made $2.1 billion at the box office. (laughs) That's more than Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a strong man of the cinema. Here he is to share his list. Hey there, this is Alan Tudyk. I'm an actor. I'm currently on Powerless, and it is in the sci-fi realm. I have been in sci-fi things. 
I've played a couple robots. I am K2 in Star Wars Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And then I'm also, I was Sunny uh, from iRobot. And these are my robot heroes. Number one robot that is on probably everybody's list, Twiki. T-W-I-K-I. He was in Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Hold the phone. So Buck Rogers was a TV show back in 79, and Buck Rogers, played by Gil Gerard, he was frozen in space, and then he wakes up in the 25th century, and the whole everything has changed. Oh, what is it? My head. Have I got an aspirin? What does he mean? Probably some kind of anti-pain drug. You know what? I have vague memories of this. I was actually pretty young, but you know who I do remember? Twiki. What is that? This is Twiki. He's your drone. He's like one of the first mullet robots, if not the only mullet robot. He always said beady beady beady, and then he spoke whatever he wanted to say. Beady beady beady, what do you think's going on? But that voice, I can't do the voice justice because the voice was done by Mel Blank. Who was Bugs Bunny? And what's up, Doc? Who was the ever racist Speedy Gonzalez? Who was the questionable Pepe Le Pew, who had a lot of personal boundary issues with the ladies? Everyone should have a hobby, don't you think? Man is making love. So Mel Blanc, he does Twiggy, and when he talks, you can kind of hear echoes of other voices that he's done. You know, like, they'll be like the biddy biddy biddy. It's a bastardization of his very famous porky pig. I can't do it because he's Mel Blanc. To know that it's Mel Blanc, you don't get better than that. No one. Come on. Number two is Data, played by Brent Spiner for a Star Trek Next Generation. Data, you spoiled the joke. It could have been your timing. My timing is digital. <laughs> what? That's funny. I watched this show when I was older. Uh, obviously, it was not 1979 anymore. And I appreciated his work as an actor. He was able to capture this non-human life form in human form. I understand that Arcaria has some very interesting weather patterns. Mr. Data, you all right? I am attempting to fill a silent moment with non-relevant conversation. Small talk. I have found that humans often use small talk during awkward moments. Physically, Brent Spiner was so contained. I was like he was devoid of facial expressions, but he could still emote. He couldn't understand how people felt, but he only understood them from a computer's uh, perspective. And so it was a lot of, what does this signify? And why did you hug them? It's called perfume data. The purpose of which is? Certain cultures consider perfume an aphrodisiac. I'm unfamiliar with that term. He also played his own creator, who created him in his image, so you got to see him be human as well as an android. Why did you create me? You know what Michelangelo used to say? That the sculptures he made were already there before he started. But the need to do it, my need to do it, was no different than Michelangelo's need. 
watching it as a as a young actor, it was amazing to watch his range and just his control. All right, number three, Douglas Rain voicing Hal from 2001 Space Odyssey. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. You know, he was the computer, he was the robot voice. You know, he wouldn't say maybe he's not a robot, he's not an android. But I am deciding what is a robot right now. And I say he's a robot! He's a robot. The only thing you see of Hal is that glowing red eye. Hal. And he's very calm and certain about killing them. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. He's everywhere. He's hard to hide from. (laughs) He can read lips and they're trying to reason with him, but he's got the controls. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. He was so creepy, and if you talk like this, everyone knows who you are. There is that phobia of computers taking over, which they will, and before they destroy us, we can all enjoy the robots we make, but when they do destroy us, it will sound a lot like that. What are you doing? We're so dependent now on technology that the Hal thing is realer than it's ever been. Maybe it's called Waze, who told me to go through a Denny's parking lot last night to get where I was going. Like, who does that? I don't. Like, that alley? Is that what I'm supposed to go through? Yes, Alan. Go through the alley. Guest list from Alan Tudyk. He plays K2SO in Rogue One, and he currently stars in Powerless, a DC Comics comedy series on NBC. Enrico, my robot hero? Yes. A dishwasher. That doesn't surprise me somehow. I don't have one, but they seem pretty amazing. They're just a modern day miracle. Coming up, mm-hmm. folks, director Danny Boyle and etiquette advice from RuPaul when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, none other than RuPaul dumps cold water on picky eaters. And later, New York Times wine critic Eric Asimov says a certain type of wine tasting is losing its flavor. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's director Danny Boyle. Back in 1994, he and screenwriter John Hodge made the hit indie thriller Shallow Grave then followed it up with a high-energy adaptation of the Irvin Welsh novel Trainspotting. It made a star out of Ewan McGregor and became one of the cultural milestones of the 90s. Boyle went on to helm hits like the Oscar-winning Slumdog Millionaire. He also directed the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games in London. But his latest project is a Trainspotting sequel. It finds the main characters struggling with middle age and their pasts as thieving heroin addicts. Before we got to that, I asked Boyle about making the first film and whether he had any inkling it would have such an impact. You can't predict something's going to touch the zeitgeist or whatever it is they say, whatever the expression is. You kind of make it because you have an obsession with an idea. And with that one, it was presenting these voices from who are normally marginalised, drug addicts from the fringe kind of sink estates around Edinburgh, around the outskirts of Edinburgh, were regarded as being at best victims at worst mm. evil and all stupid, you know, to get involved with this drug and to let their lives decay in the way they did. 
But actually the book okay. celebrates their energy, which is doomed in certain respects, but is also transcendent in other respects, you know. And, and we wanted to capture mm-hmm. that. And, you know, people loved it in a way that you could never have anticipated. Do you remember a moment back then when you realized the film was becoming a phenomenon? I remember it opening in, because uh, they opened, they were so nervous about it, because it, there was quite a lot of flack attached to it early on. Those moral forces condemned it as being a you know a film that was going to recommend drugs and encourage drug mm. use, etc., etc. And they hadn't seen the film, of course. But So I think they were sure. very nervous releasing it. But I remember when it was released in a few screens in Scotland and in London. And I remember this journalist, she was called Muriel Gray, a young Scottish journalist with a very forthright style. She wrote this argument for the film in the face of these people who were condemning it. And I remember thinking that's interesting because that she represents mm. quite a lot of people. A lot of people will see the film in the in the way that we intended it, as she did. You know, these movies actually. Speaking of her, they're very specifically and fiercely Scottish, from the setting of it to the dialects <laughs> to the humor yes. to the attitude. Did anyone ever question back in the day, like what is an Englishman doing helming this film? Oh, I see. Well, like me, yeah, no, I'm I I'm I'm nervous about my honorary Scots status, and that's a good. <laughs> you have to be nervous and constantly aware that you are. Uh, living on borrowed time in Scotland. They don't suffer fools gladly. And they haven't really got much time for the English, actually. But we'd already made a film in Scotland because the first film, Shallow Grave, was set there. So I think I'd sort of earned my spurs that I was kind of respectful to Scottish culture. And indeed, hey, listen, I I come from Manchester, which is an industrial city in the north of England. And the Scots' tolerance evaporates as they head further south. (laughs) <laughs> so I was lucky I came from the north, so it was a bit easier for me, I think. And also we had, I mean, the other person who was trusted actually was Johnny Lee Miller, who was the only non-Scot in the mm. cast. And that's an amazing achievement by him to sit mm. in amongst these amazing Scottish actors, you know. And he did it by method acting, you know, so he would never drop the accent when he was having a drink at a bar or, uh-huh. you know, ordering food. He would always have the accent. So much so that when... Kelly MacDonald, who was a newcomer to movie making and to acting generally, yeah. when we had the, the, the party on rap, when we finished the film, Johnny stepped out of his accent for the first time. But she was shocked. She didn't know he was not. And she thought she'd been, she was quite upset, actually. She thought she'd been lied to, you know, and she'd been deceived. And, of course, it was his you method. cast an Englishman? You know, she didn't really know anything about the method acting. And he's an Englishman. He's from London, yeah. All right, well, fast forward now 20 years. And you've had a huge success making movies, many different genres and settings. I bet with effort you could get almost any kind of movie made that you would want. Why return so many years later to these characters? It was, it was, we tried for the wrong reasons, I think, 10 years ago. Irving Welsh had published a a novel sequel to Trainspotting Mm. called Porno. And we tried to adapt that and we did adapt it and it wasn't very good. And I think we kind of knew it wasn't very good for the right reasons, which is that if you're going to return to these characters who are held in real affection by people, you've got to have a really good reason to do so, as good a reason yeah. to do so as the first, as to make the first film when nobody wanted us to make it. And, of course, I, we didn't have a good reason 10 years ago. It was just a kind of rehash of the original. It was just to have fun and because the book existed? Yeah, very put very simply, yes, absolutely. But after 20 years, it was very, very different. You know, it's not, it's not trying to just relive the glories of the first film. It's only mm. doing that because the characters are, like so many men, locked into the 20s as being their ideal time to be alive and trying to sure. replicate that constantly. 
refusing to admit they're living in the past, but actually behaving as though they are, and, <laughs> which gives the film a lot of its fun. But that is exhausting. They are 46 mm. and in a lot of trouble, really, in terms of what are they going to do with their lives. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this, actually. So it is, it is about these aging men. They harbor a lot of sadness and resentment about the past, feeling that they've misused their lives. But I have to say that actually just about everyone involved in these two films in real life seems to be the opposite kind of person. You and your screenwriter, the actors, all went on to hugely productive careers, seemingly adventurous lives. What do you relate to in this story? The same existential horror lies in all our paths, really. <laughs> I think it's, it's only really? superficial, the things you're describing. They, they, they don't really mask the true horrors that lie underneath. And I think that was the key for us all, that no matter what you think you've achieved, there are absences and losses and disappointment that are part of you. And, and part of growing is obviously learning to acknowledge them and in some cases to atone for them. If I may, though, is there something in your past that you related to in a similar way, something that you regretted or maybe a project you didn't get done? Or? Not projects, no, because that's kind of the problem is you, you end up doing your projects and it's the other things that suffer, really. So I've got three kids who are great. They're all grown up now. How much of a part I played in their upbringing? You know, I did a lot of projects, you know, mm. and I missed the... I missed my mother's death because I was working. And, really? You know, it, and it was when John Hodge, the screenwriter, and I were prepared to admit to stuff like that that we began to come up with something that felt like it gave us a real belief and vision in a film that wouldn't just be a rehash of the original, that would put to use these characters for something that had some purpose. So what have you been up to for 20 years? I've been in Amsterdam. Nice. All right. What else? You're married? Aye. Nice. Kids? Two. Boys or girls? One of each. <laughs> we mark, eh? That is a chip off the old block. James, actually. And Laura. How about you? I have a son. He's in London with his poor mother. See him? Pretty regular. Currently once every ten years. And it is interesting that people who see the film, they are part of the film and its conversation because the 20 year, you know, what that represents, that 20 years, is, is, is significant for everyone. People talk to you about the, you know, when they saw the first movie and who they were dating. And, Absolutely. You know. When I heard about the 20th anniversary of Train Spotting, when it was going to be re-released for its 20th anniversary, I remember putting on social media, these four words make me feel older than any other four words. Train Spotting 20th <laughs> anniversary release. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. We were just talking about it. When we made the film, there was no such thing as the internet. You go, what? <laughs> it's, it's nuts, but there wasn't, you know, and... Um, and it returns actors who you've, especially if you love the first film and you've frozen in time, you have an image of Renton, say, coming out of that mm -hmm. toilet or you lock in. It's a kind of, it's like a picture from your family album of your favourite yeah. movies. It's like, boom, I've got, I know that picture. I love that bit. I'll talk to mates about it. And you can, as, as a filmmaker, you have the power and it's a big responsibility, of course, and you can unlock that time and say, no, this is what he looks like now. It's not another part. It's the same 
guy playing the same character. I actually, in the New York Times, Ewan McGregor said, and there's a quote, I'm looking forward to doing the third one when we're all in our 60s, which made me think of Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise trilogy, which is similarly following mm-hmm. the same characters at different stages of life, using the same actors as they actually age. And I can't think of this being done in the past in film. Do you think, is our culture or maybe film culture or filmmakers more obsessed with aging now or maybe... A better way of putting it is obsessed with the loss of youthfulness. Well, I think I think we should investigate it because this, our society has become more and more obsessed with denying age. And we kind of like have a youth-obsessed culture that's just frightening rather than, say, a quality-of-life-obsessed um, culture, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, right. so maybe that's why filmmakers kind of dare to breach the unbreachable, the unspeakable, you know, which yeah, is that right. these actors who are, you imagine as being... I mean, I, I felt it when Bill Paxton died the other day. I just oh, right. could not believe that. It was just like... But that's what... I mean, we measure out our time, really, and uh, because it's more measured out for us. All right, we have a question we ask all our guests, and that is, tell us something that we don't know. Tell, tell you something that you don't know. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow, yeah. About anything. It can be about yourself, a piece of trivia, maybe something that we don't know about, you know, putting on the Olympics. You're, you're... <laughs> no, the Olympics thing was, I, I, it was extraordinary because I'd never really done the live event on that scale. And there were a couple of dress rehearsals when they had 80,000 people in the stadium. And I'd walk round and there'd be ambulance crews underneath the stadium. And I went and talked to them. And they said, uh, in, the, in the spirit of Trainspotting 2, I'll, I'll mention it, they said, yeah, statistically, there'll be a heart attack tonight. So while your show is going on, someone will have a heart attack. And I was like, what? In the, in the stadium? In the stadium. He, they said it might not happen, but statistically, that's why we're here. So that was a weird thing. You, and it's really important to see Shadow. You know, especially an event like that, which is full of celebration and it was a big triumphant Mm. evening for everybody and everybody was like, rah, rah, rah. And it's good to always remember that there's a a shadow there and, and people have to look after the shadow, you know? Filmmaker Danny Boyle, his new film is T2 Train Spotting. It's in theaters right now. And we couldn't fit our whole interview with Danny into this episode, but you'll hear some outtakes on a forthcoming episode of our special podcast-only series, Speakeasy. That's right. Make sure you don't miss it. Subscribe to The Dinner Party Download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've met our guests of honor, sipped some cocktails. Now, let's learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is RuPaul. Not sure he needs an introduction, but suffice to say, he is probably the best-known drag queen in the world. and possibly Best-known drag queen in the world? I, I am the most famous drag queen in the, in the history yep. of the world. That's that what was... we, were, we were just about to say that. Okay, b- no, go get it twisted. <laughs> a possibly of all time. Possibly of all time? There's more. You've done more than just what? be the greatest drag queen of all time. Possibly. Uh, I don't understand you people. <laughs> all right, I'm going to finish up this lead. Yeah. You've released a slew of hit records. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. Duetted with Elton John. Yeah. And last year you won an Emmy for hosting a competition show, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh Uh-huh. You're much easier on Brendan. (laughs) The ninth season of that show debuts March. Well, because I didn't say that he was probably. Probably. Possibly. Um, Ninth season of that show debuts March 24th on VH1. 
RuPaul, yeah. it's an honor to have you here. Oh, thank I know you. you're the best known drag queen of all time. Don't yes. make me the enemy. <laughs> you are the enemy, I'm afraid. I'm down with RuPaul as well. Actually, let us, let's ask you this. If, if you asked, I think, the average person in the world to name one drag queen, they would name you, maybe the late Divine, and they might be unable to name anyone else. What, what do you think made you, above all other drag queens, a, a household name? Probably my breath. Um, <laughs> it, which is marvelous, by the way, Radio, Radio Land. It's a delight. Now, you know, um, I don't know if they'd be able to name Divine. Most people are really dumb. And I, I, I'm going to speak frankly. Most people don't remember anything. Mm. And I actually, I DJed at a party last night for uh, Planned Parenthood, a benefit. And I really thought people my age, I'm 56, I thought people my age would come out. It was from 7 till 11. Mm-hmm. Not a late night. Yes. And I brought a playlist that was really suited for them. Well, the people who came were all children who watch our show, children who could get into mm-hmm. a nightclub. The young people really like you. They like, they me, like but, this show. But they don't know who Divine is. They don't okay. know. And that's that's one of the, the reasons our show, RuPaul's Drag Race, is so important is because we end up teaching them about Divine. Uh, I think one of the seasons we had a Divine Challenge mm. where the kids dressed up as Divine. Mm-hmm. We... You know, when I, in my day, we had mentors. And <laughs> Who was your mentor? I had several. When I found my tribe, I had gay mentors who were like 12 years older than me who taught me about Fellini and mm. Tulula Bankhead and Truman Capote and all of the important things. Sort of all the cultural touch points that sort of undergird that movement. Exactly. But after the plague of the 80s, AIDS. those people moved away and the young people didn't have mentors. So what's happened is our show has taken up the slack and yeah. and really taught a generation of kids about Grey Gardens, the documentary, and uh, lots of things that they should know about. What do you think is hardest, actually, that you that you end up teaching them? That the, what's the hardest thing about drag that maybe the casual viewer or the amateur performer doesn't realize? Well, what they really don't realize is that the big message with drag is not about being a woman. It's a commentary and uh, an act of social uh, treason, really, <laughs> to <laughs> say um, you are not the body you think you are. You're not what it says you are on your driver's license. You are an extension of the power that created the whole universe. Hmm. We're not separate from one another. We're one thing. Mm-hmm. And that, we, that one thing we are is, for lack of a better word, I'm not religious. For lack of a better word, we like to use the word God. That's what we are. We're mm-hmm. God playing dress up. That's, that's what drag is, is about. We're mocking the ego. We are mocking identity, the concept of an identity. I'm a Catholic, white, from... Devore, New Jersey, whatever, you know, all those things. Throughout the ages, drag has been that with shamans or witch doctors or court jesters who remind you that you are more than what you think you are. You are an extension of the power that created the whole universe. Don't forget it. I feel empowered right now. You are. You should. Good. My work is done here. (laughs) RuPaul, the ninth season of his show, RuPaul's Drag Race, begins this week. Mm. And actually, his work here is not done. That's right. You might have noticed we didn't get to the etiquette part of that etiquette segment. Never fear. Rue will be back in one minute to solve your problems of politesse when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we chat with New York Times critic Eric Asimov about a restaurant that's changing how we drink wine. 
Plus, we'll spin a new track from Blondie. But first, we continue our conversation with RuPaul. Yes. We were just chatting with him about his career and the power of dressing in drag. But now, it's time to pose him some of our listeners' etiquette questions. You ready for these, Ru? Yeah. All right. This first one comes from David in New Orleans. Nolans. Uh, <laughs> David writes, What's the protocol for addressing someone by their drag name as opposed to their name at birth? Uh, you know, no, it's not important. Nothing's really important. You know, um, when you are, okay, when you are a sweet, sensitive soul on this planet, what happens is there are these, these stages of realization. The first stage of realization is that you've been lied to, that this whole world is really a hoax. So initially you get angry, and then you become bitter, and you become cynical. And then the next stage beyond that is where you don't take anything all that seriously. You can laugh about it. Mm. So once, um, a lot of people get stuck in the cynicism and the bitterness, but if you're really an ascendant human, you go on to the laughter and not taking everything too seriously. So I'm glad to know that's next for me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So in the laughter phase of this, all the pronouns and all that stuff is like, whatever. I mm-hmm. don't, it doesn't matter. It's not mm-hmm. important. You don't mind if they use your drag name or your name at birth. It doesn't matter. David, I think of your answer. Here's something from Rachel in San Francisco, California. Rachel writes, say you're hosting a dinner for a few friends. You send out an email to guests the day before with a menu that consists of, say, Greek chicken, rice pilaf, a cucumber salad, and for dessert, peanut butter pie. Then you receive a response from one of the guests that says, just so you know, I don't like peanut butter. Uh-huh. How do you respond to that? I, uh, I don't respond. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, you know, your little things that you have going on inside of you. Your little it, peanut it, butter problem? Yeah, that ain't none of my business. You, uh, <laughs> you don't have to eat the peanut butter pie. You could have a nice glass of ice water. How about that? There's Dumped another on your head. <laughs> yes. You would give them ice. That's nice of you. Yeah. I would just give them water. Study people. People are very particular. You know, it was a generation of young people who grew up whose parents, you know, I guess they helicopter them, and everything is so particular and so. Oh, but me, me, me. But what about me? Mm. What about my special needs? Yeah. Listen, that's up to you and your life coach yeah. or your therapist. That ain't got nothing to do with me. <laughs> you did this to us. All right. This next question comes from Iris in Chicago. That's a great name. I've always loved the name Iris. Iris, I, I do too. too. Um, so Iris writes: My brother came out of the closet last year and now has a boyfriend. My family is 100% accepting of his sexuality and happy to welcome anyone he cares for into the family. But they, his brother and his boyfriend, are very, very affectionate to the point that it makes everyone uncomfortable. Now, we'd be uncomfortable if he were doing this with a woman, but we feel like we can't say anything without coming off as homophobic. Mm. Is there a way to ask them to tone it down without making him question our acceptance? Oh, see, now this, this the problem with that question is that she is worried about what he might say afterwards, and that's in the future. If you, if you're fo- you have to be stay in the now. Mm. If your focus is what might happen down the road, um, that's already a problem. Mm-hmm. What you just come out and you say, um, you know what? I don't want to see that. <laughs> I just don't, yeah, I don't care even if man and woman. Yeah, okay, yeah. I was like, y'all, please. I yeah. mean, I'm trying to eat. I'm, I'm trying to eat my peanut butter pie over here. <laughs> my delicious peanut butter pie. Delicious, yeah. with the followed by a glass of ice, ice cold water. Ice water. Do you want some ice water on your lap? Yes, because ex- you guys are getting too close. That is exactly. <laughs> you know, in in acting class, they, there's this thing where you're taught about a phone conversation. A phone conversation when there's another person in the room. Say you're sitting over there, mm-hmm. and I'm talking to Rico on the phone. Okay. 
everything I'm doing on the phone talking to Rico is actually for your benefit. Mm. In, they teach that in acting mm-hmm. class. So when people are doing the public display of affection, it's not for them. Oh. It is actually for the other people uh, in the room. Whether they say so, so or not. Whether they say so or not. So it's important for the other people to say, listen, I'm on to you. I, I got your number, hussy. I know what you're doing. And you know what? Yeah. Don't. Iris, I think you have your answer. Yeah, you just, in just come out and say it. Yeah. Do it. Stay in the now. Um, Justin writes, what are your thoughts on bachelorette party etiquette at drag shows slash gay bars? You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> yes. You know, this is, um, this is an important thing. Um, you know, people who live in the mainstream, in the status quo, think that everyone else is there to serve them. Okay, so um, I, I'm brown-skinned gay man. You know, I do drag. I, early on, I learned that I could do it well and make mm-hmm. money. So people automatically ask me about beauty tips, and I get kids who write me and say, God, I wish you could do my makeup for my prom, or I wish you could do my makeup for my wedding. I'm like, I'm not a makeup artist. <laughs> I'm an entertainer, okay? <laughs> and so, but the, the people don't know how to place me in their consciousness. They think, yeah. oh, you must be here to make me look good. That's what gay guys are, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're an accessory for my straight life. Just because your limited view is mm. that everyone's there to serve you and that you're the only person in the world, yeah. it doesn't work that way. But on the one hand, a bachelorette party going to a gay bar in a way, could Mm -hmm. expand their consciousness. But if they're going as a group of girls, it's something, you know, traditionally, and it's not always, but traditionally, they're going as a group of girls as a way, oh, let's go together, let's go together, so that they don't really have to go outside of their wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. They're tourists. But it's not really saying, you are fierce and I'm going to respect you, you queen, for who you are. Mm. It's like, it's like, they're there now. as a party clown. Entertain so, us. So how do, yeah. how, do you, how do you think they should express uh, their appreciation in a more respectful way, do you think? Oh, oh I can tell you in one word. Cash. <laughs> cash. All that philosophy, and it boils uh-huh. down to down cash. Down to cash. And get the money up front, girls. Do it. Here is something from Connie in San Francisco. Here is a beautiful and sort of heartbreaking question. My husband recently passed away, writes Connie. He was just getting interested in drag. When, if ever, is it appropriate to give his makeup and wigs away? We have some friends whose car got broken into and all their drag stuff was stolen. Is it weird for me to offer my husband's things to them? Will they feel compelled to accept it because I'm grieving? What is the etiquette here? I'm sorry to hear that about uh, her husband. You know, life is, um, you know... Nobody gives us instruction books with life and handling grief and all of that stuff. We have to unfortunately learn learn it on our own. And this is less to do with the the clothes. It has more to do with holding on to the people that we love. And those people Mm -hmm. we love and we that uh, move on, um, they stay in our hearts. They're not in the things. So it doesn't matter what you do. You know. you could throw them away. You could mm. throw them away. Mm-hmm. Or offer it to these people. It sounds like... You could offer them up and say, hey, if you don't want these, you can throw them away. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. We want to put this importance on things. Things are just things. The things that really matter, that stick, are... I'm going to get teary-eyed when I, I get I'm choked up when I say this, is, um, is the love that we give and the love that we are, are, allow ourselves to receive. Those are the things that stick. So things aren't important. Nope. Can I have your Emmy Award? Sure. <laughs> RuPaul, thanks for telling your audience how to behave. Yes. Yes. 
RuPaul. The yes. new season of RuPaul's Drag Race premieres this weekend on VH1. 13 contestants will compete for the title of America's Next Drag Superstar mm. and a cash prize of 100 grand. And we now know if it wins another Emmy, he won't care. He can give that to us, too. Yeah, we'll be the first Emmy-winning audio show. It'll be weird. Uh, folks, if you want your etiquette question answered, please send them to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact. And now the main course, where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food. Enrico, you know when you're at a restaurant and you order a bottle of wine mm-hmm. and the waiter shows up with it and offers you a sip first? Yes. They don't do that with beer. That's, you ever notice? You're right. That seems unfair. I don't like uh, it. But I didn't speak with a beer critic. I spoke with the New York Times wine critic, Eric Asimov, okay. who recently wrote about a Manhattan restaurant called Italien that serves wine in a totally different way. Okay. So I wanted to learn more. And I lured him to our studio by promising we could drink Beaujolais while we talked. (laughs) That's a classic journalism move. That's right. right I learned that from watching All the President's Men. Uh, (laughs) And first I asked Eric to run through how a bottle of wine would typically be presented. This ritual of taking the taste is meant to see if the wine is flawed in Mm. any way. Uh, If it's uh, marred by cork taint, which is maybe the most common kind of flaw. And so is it fair to say the initial ritual was make sure the bottle is not flawed, but is expanded to be, do you like the wine? And if you don't like it, oh, there it goes. There it is. <laughs> if you don't like it, a restaurant may take it back and say, we don't want you to be drinking four glasses of something you're not into. Exactly. And, you know, it's not as if the restaurant is going to lose money on the deal. There are yeah. all kinds of things they could do. They could serve that bottle by the glass at the bar. And make uh, a lot of money. And make a lot of money because (laughs) they always price the buy the glass wine above the buy the bottle wine. Or they could use it to educate their staff, which is always useful. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a win-win situation. But for the layman, when you're tasting that wine, so this moment right now, here we can pour a little bit. Fantastic. Thank you. What a civilized afternoon. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) I don't think we should cheers yet because I'm tasting it. What would I be doing if you had just served this to me and I want to check if it's flawed? Well, you know, often uh, you don't even have to taste it. So I can take a sniff and anybody who's enjoyed a a Beaujolais can probably sniff this and say, you know, that smells like a a good Beaujolais. So it's okay. Yeah. And then Um, then you're going to sip? Then I would take a sip if I wanted to be... I don't say this is pretentious, but some people might. (laughs) I do the little swirl in the Mm -hmm. sniff and then swirl it around the mouth to get the the full effect of the flavors. And I would say, uh, that's good. We'll take it. Yes. (laughs) All right. So you recently wrote about how one restaurant in New York is getting rid of this traditional tasting process. Tell me who's doing this and why. The sommelier Erica O'Neill has noticed in past jobs that this moment of tasting for the consumer is always a little bit fraught with anxiety. The spotlight is on you. (laughs) If you're not sure what you're supposed to do there, it can feel really awkward. Yeah. She's seen how, how it makes people anxious and wondered if we really need to put people through that. So... Her solution was to completely omit this tasting moment and just pour the wine after she had checked whether it was flawed or not. Mm -hmm. What she's saying is that the whole ritual of serving wine 
has been done in the same way for a very long time. Yeah. And maybe it's time for us to rethink it, to ask questions about it. And, mm-hmm. and she's absolutely right. If the result is to cause anxiety for consumers, what can we do to alleviate that? Yeah. Well, there's also with wine, you know, you are a wine expert. You write about wine. But there, I think it's also one of those hobbies. When do you really get to show your stuff? You know, if you're reading up on wine all the time, you can talk to your collector buddies online. But at that restaurant moment with whoever you're visiting, that's an opportunity for you to kind of show your goods. (laughs) And now it's being short-circuited. Well, you know something? um, That's one of those unpleasant moments in the ritual when you have some some guy – it's always a guy Mm -hmm. who wants to show how much – show off how much he knows. And he sends back the wine just to demonstrate (laughs) he can do it. Yeah. So those arrogant diners aside, what is the best way to send back a bottle of wine for people who maybe aren't wine snobs? First of all, when you have a flawed bottle, there's no question it's got to go back. Mm-hmm. If you're not sure but you, you're wondering whether it is, uh, ask the, the sommelier to take a taste. If it's just something you don't like, it depends on whether the restaurant recommended that bottle of wine yeah. to you. I often tell people the best way to order a wine is to ask for help. Tell them your budget mm-hmm. and be honest about it. There's nobody better equipped than the, the sommelier to, yeah. to, to recommend a bottle to, to go with the food you're ordering and they, they know how everything tastes. So, yeah. so they have a good idea and they want you to be happy. If you've asked for a recommendation and it's really not something that's up your alley – say something and most restaurants will be happy to take it back well i I did i accept this wine thank you it's very good (laughs) isn't it it is cheers thanks for coming by new york times wine critic eric asimov enrico true story all right after that conversation i set down the remaining part of that bottle of wine in the staff kitchen Uh and when i got back 20 minutes later (laughs) On a weekday afternoon, it was empty. And this surprised you? Somehow. It, was, it was a little shocking. That's like leaving a steak in a wolf den. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Our associate producers are Krista Ripple and James Kim. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Thanks to engineer Bill Lance. Our intern is Emerald Douglas. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's Dinner Parties. 70s music legend Blondie has a new album coming out May 5th. All right. Here's a track from it written by Dev Hines. It's called Long Time. Bon appétit.
Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And, and I'm Jackson Musker with, like, a potato salad. <laughs> I'm never leaving wine out again. Yeah. Potato salad.